a riding a white horse. This brings us to the rider on the first horse. Now, in the Bible, white is generally symbolic of the holiness of God or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 4 and verse 4, it says that the four and twenty elders are dressed in white raiment, and they have on their heads crowns of gold. And because white is generally symbolic of the holiness of God, somebody mistakenly says, this must be Jesus on the white horse. <clears throat> there are three reasons why I do not believe this is Jesus Christ. Number one, who was it that opened the seal? It was the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Why, John the Baptist identified the Lamb, didn't he? John 1.29, John 1.36, he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. <clears throat> so logically, if the Lamb opens a seal, then the Lamb's not going to be on the white horse. All right, number two. The Bible says, under this rider, he has a bow in his hand, a weapon. I want to say that when King Jesus comes back to earth, he will have no weapon. Isaiah 11 and verse 4, he will slay the wicked with the breath of his lips. This rider has a weapon. Jesus will need no weapon. All right, number three. The Bible says, under this rider is given a crown. Now, there are two words in the New Testament for the word crown. The first word we get from what I preached last night, a conqueror's crown. If those of us who are saved are faithful, when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, we will receive these conqueror's crowns. That word is always used in reference to humanity. All right, the second word is the word diadem. In Revelation 19 and verse 12, it says, Right now, on the head of Jesus Christ, are many diadem crowns. That word is always associated with deity. Now, if this were Jesus on the white horse, the crown that's given to this rider would be the diadem crown, the crown associated with deity. It's not. It's a crown associated with humanity, so therefore it must be a human being. <clears throat> you say, if this is not Jesus, then who is it? All right, listen, this is the one who is coming instead of Christ or against Christ. The Bible calls him Antichrist. I call him Deceiver. Now, as far as I can tell, are you bringing some water for me? Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. As far as I can tell, there's only one writer in the Bible to use the term Antichrist. And it is the same one who wrote the book of the Revelation, the Apostle John. I find it four times in John's writings. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4, 2 and 3, and 2 John and verse 7. Now, if you and I were to go to the Wailing Wall any times of the day or night, at that western wall you would see Jews rocking back and forth and they're chanting. There are thousands of holes in the wall. If you put your finger in one of those holes, you would generally come back with one of three prayer requests. Number one, 
They are praying for the soon coming of their Messiah. Do you know all over Israel, you will see signs, pray for the coming of the Messiah. Number two, they are praying that their persecutions will be over. Do you know that Jerusalem has been leveled to the ground 16 times? More than any city around the world, it is an indestructible city. All right, number three, they are praying that their temple will be rebuilt and their blood sacrifices will be restored. I've been to Israel five times. The last time I was there was 10 years ago. And we went into the Temple Institutes, and there was a table with a replica of their newly built temple that will be in the future. And so the guide was telling us all the compartments, the holy place, the outer court, the most holy place. And she said several things that are important. She said, now once a year, the high priest would take the blood uh, at the brazen altar and take it into the holy of holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and that covered the sins for one year. She said, now, we believe that our high priest is living right now. She said, we don't know who he is, but we believe that God is going to reveal him to us soon. And she said, we already have the materials for our new built temple. And we believe that God is going to enable us to build our temple on the temple. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding At a Jewish wedding, you will see a groom take a glass and he'll crush it under his heel. Do you know why he does that? To commemorate the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Titus and his Roman soldiers marched into Jerusalem in 70 A.D. By the way, do you know they carried the inverted or the broken cross? That's always been a symbol of anti-Christendom. So, They level the city, and ever since that time, the Jews have been without a blood sacrifice. Why? Because they have no temple. All right, now listen carefully. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. After the rapture, Antichrist is revealed to the world. By the way, I think he's living tonight. You say, are you setting dates? No. But let me ask you this. How many of you believe that the rapture could take place at any time? Raise your hand. All right. Now, do you know that when Jesus left to go to heaven, he told his disciples he was coming again. He never told them when, but he intimated he may come in their lifetime. Did you know that? For instance, John 14 and verse 3, And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you know I believe that every disciple in Jesus' day was expecting Christ to return in his lifetime? Peter said in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, But when the chief shepherd shall appear, then shall ye receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. John said 
1 John 2, 28. And now little children abide in him, that when he may appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, the disciples were expecting Christ to return in their lifetime. Now, all of the signs in Matthew 24 do not refer to the rapture. They refer to seven years uh, tribulation period, speaking of the second coming of Christ to earth after the tribulation period. So, uh, we say that the rapture is imminent. It could take place at any time, and it could have taken place in any generation after he uh, went up into heaven. If that is true, now follow me, if that is true, there had to be a person in each generation who could have been the embodiment of the Antichrist were Jesus to come during that generation. Does that not make sense? And I believe such a one is living tonight. Listen to this tremendous statement. The mood is well expressed by Henry Spake, one of the early planners of the common market and former Secretary General of NATO. He said, quote, We do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and to lift us up out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Now listen to his conclusion. Send us such a man, and be he God or be he devil, we will receive him. Hey, I contend to you the world doesn't care whether it's God or Satan that solves their problems. They want a superman to solve their problems. All right, now listen. When the Antichrist is revealed to the world, he befriends the Jews. He confirms a covenant with the Jews for seven years. Pastor, I used to preach that the thing that triggered the tribulation was the rapture. About 40 years ago, I had a layman in Ohio say, that's not true. The thing that begins a tribulation is when the Antichrist confirms a covenant with the Jews. How long is that covenant supposed to be? Seven years. How long is the tribulation to be? Seven years. So the moment he confirms that covenant with the Jews, that begins the seven-year tribulation period. All right, so... The, there's the rapture, Antichrist is revealed, he befriends the Jews, he confirms that covenant with the Jews for seven years. But in the middle of that seven-year covenant, it is broken. He turns against the Jew, he turns against the God of the universe. Uh, then we have the rider on the second horse. All right, notice please, the rider on the second horse. I call him destroyer. It says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And uh, it says, there went out another horse that was red. And power was given him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's what you can do. You can take a Bible in one hand, open it to Revelation chapter 6. You can take a Bible in the other hand, open it to Matthew 24, and you will find that they're one in the same. Each one of these horsemen is found in Matthew chapter 24. All right, the rider on the white horse, Matthew 24 and verse 5. And many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. All right, the rider on the red horse I call destroyer. You have that spoken of in Matthew 24 and verse 6. And there shall be wars and rumors of wars, the rider on the red horse. Two things I want to point out to you about this rider. Number one. His purpose, verse 3, he's coming to take peace from the earth. Now, don't you get the irony of that? The Antichrist is imitating the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, who is the Prince of Peace. And the Antichrist comes preaching peace. And the Jews think that that covenant that he makes with them is a covenant of peace. But you know what Isaiah 28, 18 calls it? Kids, listen, please, on the back. Please don't talk. Please don't communicate. Listen. Now, uh, the Bible calls a covenant with death. It is an agreement with hell. Isaiah 28 and verse 18. Daniel 11 and verse 25 says, By peace shall the Antichrist destroy many. So he's coming preaching peace. But his real purpose is to take peace from the earth. Do you know in the last 4,000 years, we have had only 268 years when there has not been a war. In spite of over 7,000 peace treaties. And I want to say planet earth will never know peace until the Prince of Peace reigns on Zion's Hill. Several years ago, I was in New York City for a prophecy conference and uh, my host, Greg Hartman, said, I'd like to take you to the United Nations building. Now, I had heard about this, but I'd never seen it with my own eyes, Wes. We went, and right across from the United Nations is a monument with a worthy portion of Scripture, Isaiah 2 and verse 4. It says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Someone said, well, isn't that wonderful? The United Nations is recognizing the Bible. Folks, there's a problem with that. You know what the problem is? First part of the verse has been totally left out. The first part of the verse says, and he, God, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. So you know what the United Nations is saying? They're saying, God, we don't need you to bring in a millennium. We're going to bring in a millennium. We don't need you to tell us that murdering unborn babies is wrong. We don't need you to tell us that homosexuality, premarital sex, extramarital sex is wrong. We're going to bring in a millennium. But you know what the Bible says about that? Psalm 2, 1 through 6. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break asunder their bands and cast away their cords from us. Get it. But He 
that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and shall vex them in his sore displeasure. Why? I have set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. And I want to say during the tribulation period, there will not be a spot on the face of the globe where one can put his finger and say, here tonight is a place where there is peace. There will be race wars, class wars, religious wars, political wars. Not only will nation be at war against nation, but a man's foes will be those of his own household. Matthew 10 and verse 21 says, The time will come when a brother will deliver up his own brother to death. The father, the children, the children will rise up against the parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we see his purpose. He's coming to take peace from the earth. All right, number two, we see his program. Verse 4, unto this writer is given a great sword. So his program will be bloodshed. Jeremiah 25, 29, ye shall not go unpunished, but I will send forth a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth. And the Bible says in Isaiah 34 and verse 7, there will come a time when the land of Israel will be soaked in blood. Are you listening? I believe here we have the emergence of World War number one. Now, I did not say World War number three. I said World War number one. I'll explain that in a moment. Take your Bible. Keep your finger here. Turn, please, to Revelation chapter 16. Two things I want you to notice about World War number one. First of all, the place, verse 16. It says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. The word Armageddon means mount of slaughter. Now, look this way. If I were giving you a geography, Bible geography lesson, here's what I would do. I would put a whiteboard where this pulpit is. I would put a line right down the center of that whiteboard. To the left of that line, I would put Mediterranean Sea. To the right of that line, I would put Israel. North in Israel, I would put a dot that would represent Mount Carmel. I would go 14 miles diagonally down this way, put a dot, that would represent Mount Tabor. I would go 14 miles diagonally down this way, put a dot, that would represent Mount Gilboa. So strictly speaking, World War Number 1 will be fought in a plot of ground 14, 14 by 24. Do you know that that's the most important real estate in the world? It adjoins three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And anybody that controls the world by necessity will have to control that plot of ground 14, 14 by 24. Napoleon Bonaparte fought there. Do you know what he said about that? He said that is the most perfect battlefield in the world. He had no idea what he was saying. So the place, Armageddon, Mount of Slaughter. All right, notice please number two, the participants. Notice verse 14. 
It says, For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth, get it, and the whole world, to gather them together to the great day of God Almighty. All right, look this way. Now, why did I say world war number one? There has never been a war, folks, when all nations were involved. This will be the first one. The Bible says in Zechariah 14 and verse 2, all nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. Psalm 2 and verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. So all the world will be involved in this battle. Now, if I were to call five of the most knowledgeable Bible students and, and put them on the platform tonight, and I would say, what is the battle of Armageddon? Here is the answer that I would generally get. It is that last battle that concludes the seven-year tribulation period. All right, let me call something your attention. There are two Greek words for the word battle. One word means an isolated event, one battle. The second word means a series of battles or an entire war. Do you know what the word for battle is in verse 14? It's not one isolated event. It's a series of battles or an entire war. And it is my contention, listen carefully, there are four campaigns that comprise in totality the war of Armageddon. Campaign number one. There is a horde that comes down from the utmost north, which is none other than Russia. They are coming down on horseback. In 1975, I was in Moscow, and we went to a Russian circus. I've never seen anything so spectacular in my life as I saw that night. Now, the Russians boast that they have 60% of the horses of the world. Not Colorado, but Russia, see. And the Cossack is the most skillful horseman in the entire world. That night at that circus pasture, we saw the Cossack get on that superior breed of animal. The Cossack would have a sword in his hand. He would go full speed ahead, go around the belly of that horse. He could cut out an object out of a man's hand going at full speed ahead. So, ladies and gentlemen, they're already ready to come down on horseback. Now, when they come down, there will be five nations that will accompany them. Ezekiel 38, 5 and 6. First of all, there's a country called Persia. What is Persia tonight? 1935, the name Persia was changed to Iran. Secondly, there's a country called Ethiopia. If you want to identify that Ethiopia, all you've got to do is go to Genesis chapter 2. The Garden of Eden was in the region of Ethiopia, which is none other than Iraq. So you have Iran coming down. You have Iraq coming down. Thirdly, you have Libya. Fourthly, you have a country called Gomer. These people have been identified as the people of Germany. Now, folks, there is a disease that Germany's never gotten over. You know what that is? Anti-Semitism. And all of Germany will be sympathetic with that northern invasion. Fifthly, you have a country called Togomar. These people have been identified as the people of Turkey. Now, when they come down, it will be such a terrible battle. Millions 
of that northern horde will fall in the northern fields of Megiddo. Ezekiel 39 and verse 4, Thou and all thy bands shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and the people that is with thee. And it's going to be such a terrible battle. Ezekiel 39 and verse 12 says, it's going to take seven months to bury all the dead bodies. Ezekiel 39 11 says, the passengers that walk by will have to stop their noses because of the terrible stench. Hey, can you imagine what Israel will smell like when for seven months millions of dead bodies rot in the red-hot Palestinian sun, and their stench raises up to heaven. Ezekiel 39 and verse 9 says that uh, it's going to take seven years to clean up all the dead carnage and the weapons of warfare lying in the road. All right, so campaign number one, they're coming down from the north. Campaign number two, Daniel 11 and verse 40, the king of the south, shall push at him. That's the Arab and the African nations. Then you go to Revelation 9, 13 through 16. You have them coming down from the north. You have them coming up from the south. Now, 200 million are coming over from the east. Only one country in the world that could field an army of 200 million. Who's that? China. So you have China, India, Japan, the Koreans coming over. And that battle is going to last for a year, a month, a day, and an hour. Get this. And that battle, one-third of planet Earth will be wiped out. One-third. In the First World War, there were 8 million casualties. Second World War, 78 million casualties. All the wars of all times have produced less than 200 million casualties. If this war were to take place in our lifetime, and by the way, it will not, we will have been raptured by this time, but it would slay 10 times the amount of those who have been slain in every battle of every age. All right, get it. They're coming down from the north. They're coming up from the south. They're coming over from the east. What does that leave? Revelation 13. The beast comes up out of the sea, the nations. The beast is the Antichrist. He has seven heads and ten horns. What are they? The Bible tells us. Revelation 17 and verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There's only one city around the world that sits on seven hills or mountains. It is the city of Rome. Rome will be the political capital of the world. All right, he has seven heads, but he has ten horns. What are they? Revelation 17 and verse 12. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings or ten kingdoms. So in the middle of the tribulation, the north, the south, and the east have been defeated. That leaves way for these ten major western nations to comprise the one world government. By the way, folks, they are not talking in Washington about if we have a world government. They are talking about when we have a world government. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the atomic bomb scientist, said there must be set up a world power. 
Physicist Arthur Compton said, world government is in the making, whether we like it or not. All right, now get it. You have these ten major Western nations. Where is the United States of America geographically? We're in the rest, West. What do you have religiously in the West? You have professing Christendom. It is my contention the last battle of the tribulation will be fought by these ten major Western nations, including the United States of America, against the very Son of God from heaven. Now, I'm getting ready to conclude this thing. I want you to take your Bible and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's the most often asked question to me about prophecy. Brother Comfort, will there be any saved in the tribulation period? All right, what do you think? Will there be any saved in the tribulation period? How many of you have read the books left behind or you've seen the videos? Raise your hand. All right, many of you have. And they're good in many aspects. I was on the plane and a man next to me was reading a left behind book. And he was unsaved, but it gave me a tremendous opportunity to witness to him. It has people thinking about the second coming who've never thought about it before. But there is a grave danger connected with that Left Behind series. Now, in the video that I saw, the pilot is saved. He's having an affair with a stewardess on the airplane. His wife is saved. He's not. She tries to get him saved. He wants nothing to do with it. In the course of trying to get him saved, she tells him about the rapture and the tribulation. She says, one day Jesus is coming. Those of us who are saved will be taken out, and those who are not will be left behind, go through seven years of tribulation. Well, one day the pilot is on a plane on a flight, and he's listening to his radio system, and he hears one calamity after another being announced. By the way, have you ever thought about what the 24-hour news cycle is going to be like in the tribulation? Think of that. One breaking news after another. So he keeps listening. A stewardess comes to the cockpit. She says, sir, many of the passengers are gone. We don't know where they've gone. We've checked the restrooms. They're not in there. The doors of the plane have not been opened. So he keeps listening to his radio system, calamity after calamity. He finally gets the idea, I'm going to go out and call home and see if my wife and family are all right. So he calls home continuously, no answer, no answer, no answer. Finally, he puts it all together. He says, that's what my wife warned me about. She was saved, I'm not. She's been taken and I'm left behind. When he puts it all together, he gets saved. There is an evangelical preacher who is left behind. He puts it together and he gets saved. Are you listening? It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. All right, the question, will there be any saved in the tribulation? Notice, please, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Speaking of the Antichrist, even him whose coming is after the work of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders 
and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish, get it, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned to believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, look this way. Now, the question is, will there be any saved in the tribulation? Don't misunderstand. Millions will be saved. Millions will be saved. When Russia comes down, two-thirds of Israel is wiped out. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. The one-third of Israel that is left, they look upon him whom they appears, claim him as their Messiah, Zechariah 12, 10, and the nation of Israel is born again as in a day. All right, now listen. Through Israel's conversion, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, there will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists, not Jehovah's Witnesses, but Jewish evangelists. And these will throughout the world and they'll preach the gospel of the kingdom and millions will be saved. Are you listening? It won't be anybody in this service tonight. Why? Verse 10, because you received not the love of the truth now that you might be saved. Verse 11, for this cause God will send you strong delusion that you should believe the lie of the Antichrist. So here's the bottom line, folks. If Jesus comes tonight and you're left behind, are you listening? Your day of grace is over. You've had a chance now. You'll not have a chance in the tribulation. Question, who was the oldest man that ever lived? How long did he live? 969 years. Now follow me. Uh, someone said God gave the people in Noah's day 120 years to repent. He didn't do it. You know how long he gave them? 969 years. You say, how do you figure that? All right, do you know what the name Methuselah means? It means when he is dead, it shall be sent. Speaking of the judgment of God. So God was giving the people a sign. He was saying, keep your eyes on that little baby boy, Methuselah, because when he dies, all hell is going to break loose. It would seem to me like everybody would have watched Methuselah. And when the Methuselah got a little cold, that would have started a worldwide revival. But they didn't watch Methuselah. All right, now follow me. A man by the name of Enoch had a son whose name was Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall be said. When Methuselah was 182, he bare a son whose name was Lamech. When Lamech was 187, he bare a son whose name was Noah. How much are 182 and 187? 369. All right, folks, are you ready? Do you know how old Noah was when God told him to get in the ark? He was 600 years old. How much are 369 plus 600? The exact length of the life of Methuselah. And I believe the very day that Methuselah died, God said, Noah, get into the ark with your family. And God kept the door of the ark open for seven days. Hey, isn't God so long-suffering? He gave them 969 years to repent. They didn't repent. And now he gave them seven days of an extended grace. Question, did anybody but Noah and his family get in the ark? 
No. Who was it after seven days that closed the door? It was not Noah. It was God. Are you listening? If Jesus comes tonight and you are left behind, God's going to close the door. No opportunity to be saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer. As Laura comes to the instrument tonight, and she plays just as I am without one please. Now, let's be logical, folks. Do you know that in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were over 330 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled? Now, if all of the prophecies concerning His first coming were fulfilled, logic tells me that all the promises concerning His second coming are going to be fulfilled. If Jesus came right now, would you go to meet Him? Can you give me a Bible reason tonight why you know you're saved? If Jesus came right now, can you give me a Bible reason why you know you're saved and you would go to meet Him? If you can give me tonight a Bible reason why you know you're saved, would you slip up your hand, please? If you're not sure, don't be a liar and raise it. If you're not sure, don't be a liar and raise it. All right, thank you. You may put them down. I wonder, is there somebody in this building tonight who'd say, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I believe the Bible, and I believe that Jesus is coming. And if he came tonight, I don't know I'd go to meet him, but I'd like to know it. I know I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. I know he rose again. I know I can't get to heaven by my good works. And tonight, I'd like to make sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved, but tonight, I'd like to make sure that I'm saved. Would you include me in the prayer tonight? I'd like to make sure that I'm saved. Slip up your hand, please, and I will see your hand and remember you in prayer. Anybody, God bless you, ma'am. Thank you. You may put it down. God bless you back there on my right. Thank you. That's two. Anybody else along with these two? Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'd like to make sure. Include me in the prayer. Anybody else along with these two? All right, you two ladies that raise your hand, would you look at me just a moment, please? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you. Then after I pray, we will stand to sing an invitation song. Now, if you really were sincere and you'd like to be saved tonight, Pastor will be here at the front. I'd like for you to come, and he will have a lady take her Bible and show you how to make sure you're saved. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to make you join the church. We're just show you how to be saved. So if you meant it, after I pray and we stand to sing, if you'll come, we'll show you from the Bible how to be saved. God bless you. You can put your heads down. All right, one more thing. And a man in Atlanta come to me and he said, Brother Comfort, he said, do you really think we believe these things? I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I think we believe them theoretically in our head, but it's done nothing to motivate our lives. Now, do you believe this theoretically or practically? 
I give this invitation in every meeting I hold. How many of you tonight would stand to your feet and say this, by God's grace, in the next 12 days, that's a week from Sunday, in the next 12 days, there's a friend or a loved one that I'm going to try to win to Jesus Christ. God being my helper, in the next 12 days, there is a friend or a loved one that I'm going to try to win to Jesus Christ. If you would say that, stand to your feet right now, please. As we wait just a moment, God bless you, God bless you. In the next 12 days, there's a friend or a loved one that I'm going to try to win to Jesus Christ. All right? Look at me, folks that are standing. My last part of my invitation will be that if is somebody you're going to try to win to Christ, I want you to come and name that loved one on your knees. Your pastor's going to pray that God will make you effective in your desire to win that friend or loved one to Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these two ladies that are here tonight who said, I want to make sure I'm saved. Lord, I understand that the message I preach tonight It's not easily understood. And an unsaved man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, we know that. But I believe the Holy Spirit can show us tonight that the door to salvation is open and that if they'll come, they can be saved. And I pray that these two ladies that said, I want to be saved tonight, the rest of their life, they'll be able to remember that this Tuesday toward the last of June in 2019, they were born again. Lord, save them. I pray for those who will be dealing with them and showing them how to be saved. Help them, Lord, to be conscientious. And then for all of these who have stood and said, in the next 12 days, there's a friend or loved one I'm going to try to win to Christ. It'd be wonderful, Lord Jesus, If we're gone a couple weeks and pastor would call me and say, Brother Comfort, some of those who stood to their feet on that Tuesday night have had the joy of winning a friend or a loved one to Christ. In Jesus' name. Let's stand, please. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Pastor standing here at the front. All right, you two ladies who said, I'd like to make sure tonight I'm saved. If you will come right now, we'll have a lady take her Bible and give you assurance from the Bible. So if you meant it, you come on. God bless you. That's right. Just as I am. Just as I am. Amen. Amen.